Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Balaguer Guitars. Founded in 2014, Balaguer Guitars strives to bring modern aesthetics and options to vintage-inspired designs. Go to balaguerguitars.com for more info. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Fishman, inspired performance technology. Fishman is dedicated to helping musicians of all styles achieve the truest sound possible wherever and whenever they plug in. Go to fishman.com for more info. And now your host, Al Levy. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. With me is one of my favorite people on this planet, Mr. John Brown from Monuments Flux Conduct. How are you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? I thought you said you were hungover. Uh, I'm a little bit hungover today. First time I've drank in a while. Um, when I saw Under Oath last night. Very, very good live band. Great band. Great songs. Everything about that band is great. Are they uh, one of your favorite bands, or is it just that you really love the production on that one record? I love the production on that one record, but I think that band writes some really great songs as well. I wouldn't say they were necessarily one of my favorite bands in the world, but I love the production on Lost in the Sound of Separation. I think it might be the the best metal record in terms of sound quality in existence. What about it? It just sounds enormous. Do you know what I mean? It's just got that that vibe to it where it's like the kit sounds real, the guitars sound like they're coming out of cabinets, and it all sounds like it's recorded, you know, in the same space, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've never really... They're one of those bands that for some reason I just never even really heard. You know how there's like bands that get super popular that somehow just never cross your path? Yeah, so or, like for me, I didn't listen to them until that record, so I missed out on a couple of records which they played back to back last night, and um, those so records when, are great. <laughs> so that's when you went to the bar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, you played me that record that you really like. What record is that, by the way, for everyone listening? Um, the record that I play that I really like is it, uh, "Lost in the Sound of Separation," and it was produced by the team David Bendeth and Dan Corneff then. Right? It would be, I think that Dan Corneff probably mixed it, yeah. Well, uh, listeners, if that's not correct, then correct us. But uh, Dan's been on the podcast twice and uh, is in our community on Facebook and is one of the most gifted and genius engineers on the planet and nicest guys, too. So uh, uh, you actually played me this album, and the thing that blew me away was that it sounds so real yet so huge and separated and every tone inhabits its own kind of personality and space yet they all work together they all work really well together don't they everything just works and there's nothing fancy about it it just rocks it just rocks yeah so the the guys that produced that was uh i can't remember the second guy but one of the guys was adam d from kill switch that was part of the initial recording process for that album. He's talented. He's a talented motherfucker too. Excuse my language. (laughs) Uh, Language is fine. Uh, So let's talk about you because you're a talented motherfucker as well. Nah. Um, Nah. (laughs) Where does it all come from? Where does it all come from? Your whole thing, your whole musical thing. You do so many different musical things and then then I find out that you also take pictures i mean you're really good at guitar you're good at production you're good at writing then i f- see your photography and that's good too <laughs> then i find out you're good you built all your um acoustic panels and stuff 
So you're good at building stuff. You're just good at stuff. Where does that come from? Were you just naturally like that or were you, were you put in like an X-Men program when you were a kid? Like, um, I wouldn't say that I was necessarily good at anything. I think that, um, I've had to work pretty hard at everything. You know what I mean? It's not like something that's like some people, they can literally play piano to a standard that is un, you know, uncomprehendable for how long they've been playing. Whereas me, I had to work my ass off to get to that point. I mean, I've been playing guitar now properly since the age of 13. So that is 18 years now, but I've had a guitar since age six. So I wouldn't, I know that I think there's people that have been playing a lot less time than me that are a lot better at certain aspects of it. I just had to try really hard to get to that point. With all the other stuff, it's literally just a case of taking your time with things, you know? If you don't rush anything and actually think about what you're doing, then anyone is capable of doing pretty much anything. You know what I mean? So it's just more a matter of uh, maybe, correct me if I'm wrong, but here's my interpretation is finding an interest, like I'm going to take some pictures of some stuff or I'm on the road, may as well take some pictures. And then just taking the time to actually figure out how to do it correctly. Yeah, basically. I mean, I, I got a bit of a head start with the picture thing because I my old job was a graphic designer. Ah, so okay. I learned a lot of uh, about DSLRs and photography and macro photography from my old job. Although when I had my old job, I didn't care about it, probably because it was a job. <laughs> so Are you I glad think, you had that job, though? Um, yeah. Yes and no. Actually, yes, because... Having that job enabled me to be able to do all the layouts for all of my solo records um, on the booklets and stuff. So now I know a little bit about what needs to happen in order to make that stuff um, a reality, which we, you know, there was a um, there was a thread on your uh, group the other day that yes. I managed to contribute to um, for people asking what they needed. So like little things like that can really help you if you know little bits about it. So learning about everything in little pieces, like maybe not to throw your opinion around, but just so you know what you have to do makes things a hell of a lot easier in the long run. You know what I mean? Well, I don't see it as, in your case, throwing your opinion around. In your case, like in that particular thread, I saw you as helping people out who were getting themselves into very frustrating situations. I so agree, the, yeah. The thread was about what you should request from a graphic designer. Should you get the uh, the unflattened files or, or should you even request them? Yeah. And some people were saying that as a graphic designer, they never want to send that. Some people were making the intellectual property argument and Brown and myself, and Brown far more eloquently than me, because he knows all the all the actual specs and stuff. <laughs> uh, really, we won't work with a graphic designer unless they uh, provide that stuff. That's, I mean, can you imagine the frustration and the uh, it just the headache of not getting those files? Yeah. I mean, like these people, I can understand where they're coming from with that intellectual property, but you kind of have to like take a seat back. I mean, you know, like some people get offended when they give away their tones on their like axe effects or something like that, but no one's ever really going to be able to recreate what they've done 100%. So even if you do give all that stuff away, it's not completely like anyone can copy you 100%. It's going to be different still. So I don't understand why people get so uptight about it. Plus we're talking about graphic design not fine art 
and this is not a this is not me putting down graphic design, but there's a difference, and the difference is that graphic design is meant for a commercial product. Yeah, and so when you have a commercial product, there is going to be used for marketing. There's going to be various different versions, like with a band. You're going to have the logo. The logo might be put on a banner that's 50 feet wide and 50 feet tall. You know, you you don't know what it's going to be used for. It's going to be on shirts, stickers, CDs, maybe vinyls. Like you don't know. There's so many different versions of what that logo is going to be used for. The artwork too. That if you treat it like fine art, where there's this one version, and this is the only version that's my intellectual property. You're going to really, really get in the way of the client, i.e. the band or the label, being able to do what they need to do with that graphic design or artwork. Yeah. Fine art is a different, it's just a, di- a whole different pursuit. It's a different world where the art is the art and the art stands by itself. Yeah, exactly. So... I think that people need to differentiate the two. I think so, too. But, I mean, point is, you know about that stuff as well, very, very well. And so where does the production side of things come from? So I used to, when I first started wanting to record down my ideas, I was very, very young. And it was before I even started on a computer. So I had two of those boom boxes as a kid, and I they used to have mic inputs on them. So I used to record back and forth between those two devices by plugging into the mic input of one and the output of the other with my guitar zoom 707 between both units <laughs> and that was kind of the start of what i did production wise so i guess you could say i started with tape but that would probably offend some engineers <laughs> wait wait say that say that again i just want to hear you say it twice okay so i started recording with a boombox and then another kind of boombox. It was kind of like, you know, a all-in-one CD player system with tape decks. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And I would record between both. So my Zoom 707, 707 pedal that I had, the GFX one, that I thought was totally badass at the time, uh, you could do drum loops on it. So I'd record a drum loop to one tape. Then I'd record from that tape to the other tape with my 707 in between them. <laughs> and then I would record like a guitar line over the drum beat that I just recorded down. It took absolutely forever to to record yeah. that way because if you made a mistake, you had to do it all again. <laughs> Man, um, yeah, but that's kind of how I started recording. How did you? How did that? Like, what made you want to do that? Because I can tell you that my first recordings happened when I had like a little Walkman with a cassette on it because I... With a mic input, right? Yes, exactly. And the reason was because I was writing songs and I uh, wanted to write two guitar parts. Yeah. And I wanted to hear what they sounded like. Together, so right? I, yeah, so, uh, well, I, I didn't have multi-tracks, so I would record one and play it back and then play over it at the same time. In okay. real time, just to make sure that the part was cool. That's a that's a good idea to do that as well. Mine was so that I could mindlessly solo over a rhythm part. Oh, well, that too. <laughs> yeah, that too. Um, because I was I was quite poor as a kid, and I was never able to buy any like guitar magazines or anything like that. Um, so that was kind of my way of being able to do that by connecting two of my parents' old 
tape machine decks, <laughs> basically. Man, the stuff that people can start with now. <laughs> right? They have no idea how easy they've got it. <laughs> I know. So funny. So you just wanted to solo mindlessly, and then I'm guessing that it just kind of evolved from there. Yeah. So um, I used to be into, like, you know, shred guitar players like Ingve Malmsteen and you know players like that um i guess rusty cooley as well back in the day because he used to be able to play mindlessly fast it's still it's still mindlessly fast it's still ridiculous yeah he's still probably one of the fastest guitar players i've ever heard but then i heard my sugar and it just ruined everything in a good way for me because um then i started focusing on rhythm that i was really bad at around the age of 16 um i was just too busy trying to play loads of notes <laughs> that didn't have any real rhythmic context if that makes sense so um yeah i heard my sugar i really liked well actually i hated my sugar when i first heard them but then got into it after you know giving them another chance which i feel like some people don't do um you know you'll listen to a band on one album you like i don't really like it but then when a new album comes out those people won't check it out again well let's be real about my sugar though that's like learning to handle hard liquor like (laughs) you know it's like it's definitely something that you need to get used to i definitely agree yeah it does take a little while because it's completely different than it well when i first heard them it was completely different than anything else at the time there was no metal bands really doing the really rhythmic approach of music to that extent when i first heard them i heard them when um just before nothing came out so it was probably around 2000 2000 early 2001 maybe and i heard the song sane which i hated but then i checked out nothing afterwards and after about a month of listening it finally started to click what they were doing Um, but it took me years to really understand what they were doing (laughs) just to speak about the difference back then it was like an explosion of cacophonous aggression just like coming through your speakers at yep. like full intensity yep. the entire time. Just like, how is this happening? There's <laughs> nobody did that. And yeah. like, I needed to listen to it in bite sized pieces. Yeah, I did too. Yeah, because it would give me a headache. <laughs> yeah, there was that as well. The weirdest thing though is that I kind of got Fear Factory because um, I played this game called Carmageddon as a kid that had. Uh, Fear Factory is a soundtrack. So for I don't understand why, but I managed to understand Fear Factory, but not Meshuggah. Well, they're different. They uh, are definitely it's... different, yeah. But they definitely both have that rhythmic thing going on. It's just that Meshuggah is a li- is quite a bit more complex in its approach to it. Yeah, Fear Factory were more like uh, songy songs. Yeah, with like catchy riffs. Whereas Meshuggah are just trying to assault you 110 yeah. percent of the time. Yeah, yeah. It, it makes your brain turn inside out. So <laughs> you're known for your rhythm playing. Yeah. So did you just drop soloing at that point and focus on riffs? Pretty much, yeah. So um, when I was uh, around 16, I developed this thing on my hands called psoriasis, which used to make my hands ripped pieces when I was doing guitar solos. So hearing the sugar came around about the right time basically, because I was really struggling to play guitar, and I found a way of getting around that problem with my hands, which was playing less notes, trying not to bend strings. On the high strings especially, the low strings, for some reason, I managed to get around. So yeah, 
the rhythmic thing pretty much started there. That's so interesting. If you go back in time, for instance, Tony Iommi from Black Sabbath, he invented down tuning because of an injury to his fingers where he cut off the tips and yeah. he wanted less pressure on the strings. He, I think he has artificial tips on his fingers and uh, he couldn't really play in standard because the tension was too high. Okay. So he dropped it. He dropped the tuning in order to accommodate his hand injury, which then created his metal. Yeah. So it's just interesting to me how when a little bit of adversity combined with a little bit of determination, a little bit of talent can really do some great things. I agree. I wouldn't say I had talent, though. I think mine was just copying Meshuggah and making it in a melodic sense that people understood. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll let you be humble. But talk more about that. How long did that take before it started to turn into something where people were like, damn, that's badass? So, yeah, around age 16, I started changing my playing style. And then age late 16, 17 years old, I met a guy called Ackle Caney who is now the guitar player of Tesseract. And we uh, started playing in a band together called Fell Silent, and I joined when I was 18. And it was probably a couple of years into Fell Silent when I started noticing that my songwriting and rhythmic ability was getting pretty good. The main song that me and Ackle wrote together in that, that band that most people will know is Immerse, which was probably one of our better songs. And yeah, it was kind of, I guess it was probably around age 21, 22 that I started noticing that um, the way that I was writing was becoming its own sort of thing just picking up on loads of different pieces of the puzzle that I'd you know done basically you know music that I'd found as a kid and it all kind of came together and created its own thing where it was a little bit of me around what year was this so uh, that was probably nine ten years ago I would say probably around 2005 2006. So, yeah, I was probably 19, 20, okay. actually. 2005, 2006. So, Gent, as we know it, had not quite happened yet. Actually, we were doing the Gent thing, but it was starting and, yeah. It, it was starting to to seep through the underground, but as we know it in terms of, like, a popular genre yeah. that has, like, hundreds of thousands of followers and clone bands and all that as we know now uh hadn't happened yet no there was a select few people that were doing it like you had um paul ortiz who plays for a band called chimp spanner but he's more on the fusion side of it it's more like you know like a a techie fusion kind of sound but his first album came out in 2003 i think so he was one of the first ones really to sort of do the whole mushiga thing kind of then obviously you had Misha as well that was posting all of his bulb demos uh, around that time as well. Ackle started Tesseract in 2003 and then there was Fell Silent. And then obviously you had a couple of other bands that kind of tinged on the Gent sound, but it's not really Gent. You had like, you know, you had uh, uh, the band, I, I consider Candiria in places kind of on that tech side. Um, but again, that's a band that unfortunately no one really cared about when they were around. 
back in the day. I don't know if you're a fan of Candiria EL, but I think they're absolutely incredible. <laughs> for their time, for sure. Yeah, definitely. So you know, they, they, they had an album, What Doesn't Kill You Only Makes You Stronger, which I find the song Blood especially has kind of that, you know, that genty vibe that people are kind of going for. And then obviously you had Sixth in the UK as well around the same time. But I mean, the modern gent sound, I feel like in lots of ways is what you, Ackle and Misha put out. Kind of, yeah, kind of, yeah. I think Paul should be in there as well because Paul has quite a thing that a lot of the guitar you know, shred kind of gent as well. You yes. Know, if you have that sort of stuff, which I think Paul kind of started, even if people don't really reference him as an influence, I think he was like the first guy to really incorporate the two. I very much remember him. Uh, I forgot about Jim Spanner, but now I remember those days, Jim Spanner and Bob all over the internet. Yeah. And, but I think it's interesting. Well, I don't know if you guys, if you and Paul knew each other, but you and Misha also have a history. Yeah. It's not just you and Ackle, it's you and Misha. Yeah, in fact, all of us actually. In fact, Paul played guitar for Monuments on a tour, and the first ever live Chimps Banner band was myself, uh, Swanee, and Mike Malian, all playing as his backing band. <laughs> and that was back in 2011 and 2010. Okay, and what's the history with Misha? Uh, with Misha, well, I first met him, I think, in 2007. His parents are from Mauritius, and he was flying back to London from uh, Mauritius to go back home to the States, and he had a few days off in London, so I, uh, he came and stayed at my house. Um, you know, we got on well. And then a few years later, I filled in on uh, for Periphery when Jake Bowen injured his finger, and he couldn't play guitar for 10 weeks. So I did uh, part of the European tour and also the entire American tour with uh, Fair to Midland. And so you guys all go back a very long way. Very, very long way, yeah. Over 10 years. I just think it's interesting that the uh, kind of the originators of this style are all homies from back in the day. <laughs> yeah, I think it's because we were all part of the Meshuggah Forum as well. And, you know, sevenstring.org, Harmony Central, because that was like where people used to chat because obviously Facebook wasn't around back in 2006, 2005. You had MySpace, but it wasn't quite as, you know, where you could all get together. I mean, we used to message all each other on message each other on MSN Messenger, if you remember that. <laughs> oh yeah, that was the one that looked like shit. I remember, but uh, but I met some cool people through it. Definitely, yeah, yeah. So that's kind of like how we all started, my sugar forum. Not many people probably know this, but I remember Misha asked Ackle to program the drums for the first song that he released, which was the Letter Experiment, and that must have been two thousand and three, two thousand and four, or something like that. So yeah. <laughs> Long did, time ago. did you guys know that you were onto something new? I don't know if I definitely thought that it was the new sound when I first heard it. They had Ackle sort of, you know, he had a he had a band before Fell Silent as well, which was called Mikor Barish. A few people probably would have heard of it, but they never really got outside of the area of where they were. But it was kind of like the Doors meets Meshuggah with that, you know, that clean guitar sound that everyone calls Milton Cleans. The Doors, the classic rock band. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, cool. So it's kind of like a mixture of the Doors with a little bit of Meshuggah in there and a little bit of Bjork influence, I guess, as well, a little bit. But Ackle, I think, was very inspired by Led Zeppelin uh, to begin with, which obviously explains the dad-gad tuning he showed me that then I ended up using a lot. You know, that that time period, I remember hearing 
the bulb stuff and th- that kind of stuff and being like, this is the future. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I also thought that bands like Gojira were the future. Yeah. But not many bands really followed in their wake and ripped them off. No. The, the way that, uh, the way that the gent thing happened, there isn't like, like 10,000 Gojira ripoffs, even though I think Gojira is the best metal band on the planet. I heard their stuff in 2007 was like, this is the future. This is perfect. Perfection. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then I heard the kind of stuff that you guys were doing and was like, this is also the future. Thank you very much, Yael. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what's funny about Gajira for me? The first time I saw him live, I walked out. It was before. <laughs> <Why>? <laughs> it was before the Way of All Flesh came out, so it was on there from Master Sirius, and I saw them with Textures supporting, who are also another great tech band that I feel didn't get the love that they deserved. And yeah, I just didn't get it. I think a lot of times when you see a band live before you hear their stuff on record, if you're not familiar, especially with the tech stuff, it's kind of hard to understand what's really going on, if that makes sense. That's true. Very true. So I think for me, I just needed a slap in the face and to actually put the record on. Because <laughs> if I, if I, you know, I'm an idiot for missing Flying Whales, you know? <laughs> yeah, I completely understand. It, I mean, live sound is so dicey anyways. Yeah. It's hard to hear a band for the first time live. Don't get me wrong, though. The venue that we saw them at, they sounded tight as hell. It was tight, but I just didn't really get it. Though I will say that I heard Behemoth for the first time when I saw them live with like 100 people in the room, and I was blown away. I thought they were phenomenal. Okay. Uh, In like 2004 or something. Wow, that's a long time ago. Oh, yeah. They weren't big yet, but they were just, they were every bit as in your face and all about winning <laughs> like as, as they are now. They, yeah. they were incredible. So all this time you were kind of recording yourself, engineering your own parts, writing a lot. How did your tastes into, in serious production come along? Because I know that lots of the guys that record themselves, they get good at, you know, they get good at using their DAW and, you know, superior drummer and stuff. Yep. A lot of the guys from that era have like good laptop skills, yep. but there's a few, which is fine. Like I'm not, you know, not talking down on that at all, but there's a couple guys who developed some serious engineering skills, like to where they, they know what all the different high end condenser microphones are. They know lots of creative ways to mic a drum set. They know signal routing game staging all the all the stuff yeah you know they they know how to engineer for real like where did that come from uh, i've been really impressed over the years with your with your engineering knowledge you've taught me a lot of things about engineering that you know just little things that i've passed on to other producers who are incredible like the uh sm7b over the snare trick that then jay rustin started using as well that came from you i mean there's <laughs> wow like, i didn't know where, that that's cool <laughs> yeah well you taught it to me i told him to try it then he used it so i mean you don't get that kind of stuff from the laptop guys where did your serious interest in engineering come from i guess it was um so i started 
obviously on the tape thing and then eventually i moved to cubasis that i got for free with my sound blaster order g sound card <laughs> that's when i had my upgrade hell yeah dude I, that's that was my first sound card. I thought too. it was great, man. It had the little, um, you know, the interface in the front of your computer. It had SP diff in it, and it was yep. great. You know, you could record. I could record my pod directly to the computer without having to, you know, deal with XLRs or anything like that. So it was great. First great sound card. It sounded good as well. You know, well maybe it didn't, but back then it sounded great. <laughs> um, <laughs> so then, age sixteen to eighteen, I went to. It was called Sixth Form in the UK, and it's not. It's kind of the same as college, I guess, a little bit. Just before you go to university, it's like the middle education bit. The school I went to started a music production, music technology course. So I got to learn like the very, very basic things about, you know, recording a drum kit, um, miking up stuff through that, which then my uh, interests went further um, as time went on. So, you know, much like anyone else, I, you know, picked up an SM57 put it in front of my cab and wondered why it sounded like shit. But then, you know, just, I think a lot of the time that kind of stuff requires time. It's not something that you can teach to someone and they'll know that it sounds good straight away. Much like, you know, with the laptop guys, it takes time to really train your ears into what sounds good and what sounds not good. Um, But then there's the difference in people that um, you'll find that there's the people that have their own unique sound as well. Do you know where I'm getting at? Yes. <laughs> with this yeah so there's people that can be really good producers and get something sound good but then there's the extra level guys that make their sound and you know that they've done it and i guess that's kind of where what you know where all this developed for me because i was like i don't really want to copy anyone else and what they're doing i want to create a sound that sounds like me so all these like little techniques and tricks and stuff are just basically through you know i guess trial and error what works because things that work for me aren't necessarily going to work for everyone you know well you know what i think is funny about developing your own style i don't think you need to try at it i think that it's as unique as your personality i agree there are people whose personalities are let's just say more unique than others yes right so you could put the same level of training into two different people and those two same people is say they both work eight hours a day for five years straight engineering, learn all the same stuff. Yep. And one of them might have a more generic personality and more generic, I guess, sensibility musically. Mm-hmm. And their productions are just going to sound more generic as opposed to the person who just happens to have a more unique uh, musical outlook. Kind of, yeah. I I definitely agree with that, yeah. And so I I think that there's an element... I mean, you can decide to take actions to develop your own techniques, right? Like, that you can... There are things you can do to accelerate it, I think. Yeah, definitely, Um, yeah. I agree. But I think that just like if you have an odd personality... Like uh, like I just had Blast go on and we talked about Rob Zombie. Okay. Um, but we talked about Rob Zombie's talents. And that's a person who had all these unique talents and outlooks on things. And he developed them all. Like he took the actions necessary to become a good illustrator, become a, a cool songwriter, but you know, all that stuff. Yeah. So you can decide to 
take it to the next level. But I think at the end of the day, you put two people in the room with the same training, you get one guy that's Rob Zombie and one guy that's just can do multiple things. The Rob Zombie is going to always be the Rob Zombie. Exactly. Their, pers- their personality is just what it is. It's different. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Just to spin off more on that, like when it comes to like certain productions, like as I was saying, you can understand when it sounds like a person, a person that's done it. Like for example, Valentine, you know, um, that did Queens of the Stone Age. Um, yes. I watched some of his sound on sound videos and to me they were really inspiring so anyone yeah absolutely incredible like they they, they're thinking completely out of the box to the point where i wouldn't you know i wouldn't have thought of ever trying that because it's scary territory you know what i mean lining up four guitar amps only putting two mics up where your ears would be and then capturing the sound of the room with the guitars in them like no one ever thinks of doing that anymore you know and none of the none of the laptop guys want to do that you know what i mean like that's yeah, that kind of, of separate personality that you don't really get in much modern production, in my opinion. A lot the of modern, he, the, yeah, just the like he yeah, just the way that those he, mids. yeah, the way, <laughs> yeah, like like the way he boosted the mids, like just making sure that everything was in phase in the room. No one really tries that in modern production. It's kind of kind of sad in a way. You know what I mean? Well, it's it's like the laptop version of production. It, is going after a different kind of goal, I think. I, I think, think so, that, too. I think that they're going more for a... Uh, it's almost like the car... I call it the car stereo test sound. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I know exactly like, what you mean, yeah. Like, it, it's, it's a kind of sound that you're trying out different car stereos and you need something that's going to that's going to like offend the entire neighborhood when you pull up at the, uh, at the red light. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, that's kind of what I think of what the goal of laptop production and heavy music is at least. Whereas I see the, the Eric Valentine thing more as a, a much more of an artistic statement. Definitely. Yeah. I guess it is over, like for, for certain, you know, productions, it might be considered you know, over produced in that sense, but I don't know, man. It just like that, that outside of the box thinking is something that I don't really see from many laptop producers. They just, you know, they want to get their axe effects. They want to get their superior drummer and they just want it to sound like something that someone else has done. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that never pulled you in. No, like, don't get me wrong. Like, I love my superior drummer from Toontrack. It has helped me out so much along the years, but when someone uses avatar kit now you know that it's avatar kit because they've probably used the presets that sold on two tracks website to make it sound good they haven't really just sat down and gone through the eq and the different compressors themselves just to like see what everything does you know and train their ears to understand what each thing does they just want it to sound good press one button and it sounds good whereas that to me isn't production and i know from working with you that you're not just full of shit or talking shit because I've watched you make guitar tones and I've seen you be able to make a guitar tone in five minutes mm-hmm. but I've also seen you sit there for a couple hours if it wasn't coming around and I've seen that you don't you're not satisfied with just going with something that's good enough or something that kind of sounds like somebody else you need to make sure that it 
that you can actually express your playing your sound through it exactly right exactly or yeah not, or you're not comfortable proceeding there, there there is a point to that as well it's like a lot of people when they record these days won't even spend any time on their guitar sound they'll use a guitar sound that they've previously got that they thought sounded great and then they'll rely on reamping later on to get their guitar tone but i've got this this thing where i believe that you play to the guitar sound that you have so if you have another guitar sound that is vastly different than the one that you've used to record with, it's going to sound a little bit wrong because of the way that the amp responds to your playing. And this is something that I've, I've, I, you know, I've reamped lots of different things and I notice it straight away. Um, like, for example, I find that the pick attack is almost completely gone when I reamp compared to when I'm playing through it directly. And um, I think part of that process of me spending so long on a guitar tone is that I want the guitar tone to be as right as possible so that, you know, down the line, if I need to make any changes, they'll only be minute changes rather than having to reconsider the entire, you know, setup for the guitar. Well, and I remember even uh, if people want to watch this in action and the boot camp, the Creative Live boot camp that we made together we see the thing is this wasn't on a lot of this wasn't on camera because it took us about 12 hours but we when we first dialed up the mesa tones yep and we spent an entire day trying to get that to work and we were hating it and you weren't able to play very well through it yep it was kind of throwing you off and like we're like it's kind of sounds cool let's try to track with it uh, we've spent so much time. We've tried so many different configurations of it. Let's just try to get through the song. And you were kind of not into it and kind of playing a little shitty. And just yeah. we were we went home kind of bummed out. We did got a different got a different amp the next day. Spent like fifteen minutes on the tone and then tracked the song in like an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty weird, isn't it? The weirdest thing though is that when we actually got those sounds for the Mesa, they sounded great in the room. Yeah. They did. So sometimes it like maybe it was our mic position on that day or you know, maybe it's just the fact that it didn't gel with the drums that we did or, you know, something like that. Because that's another thing that people don't really think about when it comes to the laptop guys as well, is if your song, if you see it as like a flat plateau and everything's working perfectly together, then your guitar tone is like spikes in that plateau and then your drums are spikes in that plateau as well and you're trying to create one whole sound so a lot of the guitar guys will think oh that guitar tone sounds great and then they'll like be bewildered why it doesn't work in a mix and i think that's like a, one of the things that people really need to learn like what something that sounds good by itself will probably not work that great in a mix and vice versa so when I get a guitar tone that sounds good to my ears that I think is going to work in the mix, generally it's not a very nice guitar tone. So you've had to accustom yourself to be able to tell how it'll work in terms, you know, in the bigger picture, as well as at the same time feel really good in your hands. Exactly, yeah. So like a lot of times, you know, people will be like, that guitar tone sounds fat on that record, but they're actually hearing the guitar gelled in with the bass guitar especially for mel you know so i guess it's just learning the the difference differentiation between what you're hearing and learning that the bass guitar is probably taking up this much space and the guitar is actually only taking up this 
So that is an interesting topic. I want to talk about that for a little bit. Okay, so you've got two different criteria here that you've talked about. Okay. One is making sure that you can play to it properly. Yep. The other is making sure that it fits the big picture. Exactly. Now, one thing that I know about your your style, because I know your style pretty well, is that you have multiple dynamics in your right hand. Yeah. Uh, and that's where you get a lot of your... Uh, a lot of the intricacy comes from the dynamics. Yes. So as a re- in order to get that out, you need to play with lower gain because the more gain you put, it acts like I would it's like a compressor times 10,000. Yeah. Like it's the most powerful compressor on earth and your dynamics will get destroyed. Yes. So you need you need to play with low gain. Yes. Or the John, you know, so that that is part of the John Brown sound is low gain on the amp uh, with an overdrive because high high gain is just not going to work. Um, no. And it's actually interesting because when I've seen other guitar players try to play through your sounds, myself included, it's been like, wow, this is so damn clean. Like, how does he do this? So so there's that, but then. As well as that, there's knowing how it fits in with the bigger picture at the exactly. same time. So you have to fulfill both criteria with the tone. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about fitting it in to the bigger picture. Okay. So I guess, like, you know, in every scenario, the first thing that ever gets recorded is drums. They are the foundation of your song or your record. Probably the most important part of the record, because if you screw that part up, then you've got no hope for the rest of it. So I guess it's about, you know, where is where is your snare and your kick drum going to cut through? That's the first thing that you should sort of like, you know, listen for. Where is your kick drum? Is it going to be cutting through at 2K? Is it going to be cutting through at 5K? You know, or something like that. And the same with the snare. Where is it going to be cutting through? And that should be like sort of your starting point on where you want your guitar tone to cut. Am I making sense with this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, so for example, like, you know, um, a lot of people like their lower mids in their guitar tone, you know, like between like 250 and 500, whereas I'm kind of completely against that being such a prominent part of my guitar tone because there's quite a lot of things going on in that area already. You know, your bass guitar is going to be taking up that for the note. The snare... The bottom end, you know, the, the the fullness of the snare is going to be around there as well. Uh, what else is going to be, you know, vocals probably go into that territory a little bit as well, especially on the lower male vocals. Yep. So when I come to a guitar tone, the reason that I, you know, for example, my oh, guitar... Oh, and, and left hand of the piano. I oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, yeah, left hand of the piano, yeah. Uh, what else? There's loads of things that goes into that frequency range, which is often cut in metal, obviously, because it's the muddy part as well. It's the part that makes it not sound heavy, <laughs> but it's where all the note comes from. So you have to really be careful with that with guitars because I find that guitars muddy up the entire mix anyway because you're basically trying to make white noise on the sides of a track sound musical. So just to further, so basically I will focus my guitar on being high mid driven rather than low mid driven just so that I can make the snare, the bass guitar focus in that region that is considered the mud, you know, 250 to 500. And then like, you know, my bass guitar, um, it's going to also cut in the top end and it's also going to interfere with the kick drum a little bit. So then I need to focus on where the kick drum is cutting through my mix so that my bass guitar isn't going to basically fight to get heard in the mix, especially in the top end where the kick drum is going to be cutting. So 
with such a high mid approach mm-hmm. to the guitar, how do you keep it from sounding painful? Well, because, like and nasally. That's, that's a, yeah, nasally and harsh and uh, annoying. Because you've got a very sweet tone. Like, you've got just the right balance of upper and mids. But is sometimes I've seen guys who try, uh, they understand that that's where a lot of de- definition comes from, and they just end up with a either a nasally or a harsh and painful tone. So a lot of guys I've seen that try to recreate this tone will boost 1.6 kilohertz a lot because that's kind of like that nasally, you know, that kind of genty kind of sound but i'm not into boosting 1.6 at all when it comes to to the high mids you just need to understand where the horribleness is like the way that i mix i don't boost frequencies very much either i'm more of a cutter so i find that especially with digital audio workstations the eqs aren't as musical to the ears and it adds another level of distortion um you know like uh digital distortion to the sound so i find that cutting makes it a lot easier to make it sound good rather than you know boosting frequencies so when it comes to guitars obviously there's a set of frequencies that i find that i hear a lot on mics and then there's different frequencies for modelers as well like uh for example you know when you've got a mic'd up guitar sound 4k is an absolute must we need to get rid of 4k (laughs) 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 not completely though obviously um you know, there's multiple different ways that you can approach the guitar as well. Like in terms of mixing, you know, you have like, you know, your sneep method where, you know, you can use a wave C4 to control that um, the annoying frequencies in the top end. I'm more of minimal EQ notches, basically to get rid of these, you know, these harshness that you that you talk about. It's basically trying to make the guitar sound completely even whilst also being aggressive, which is quite difficult to do. It's taken a long time for me to understand really what I'm doing. Well, the thing is that a lot of people, when they start hearing the nastiness up high, they'll cut it and then they'll listen and they'll hear more and then they'll cut it and then they'll hear more and then they'll cut it. And before you know it, they'll end up with a guitar sound that's completely neutered. Yes. And that can be a multitude of different things. They're probably listening too loud to their mix Mm -hmm. or they've been listening to it for too long i'll tell you what really helped me out with guitars on the top end is actually getting a set of ns10s now ns10s are absolutely disgusting in every single way most days i hate them to be honest how music sounds on them but they really help you with those frequencies in the top end on the guitar that are really really horrible and making sure you don't cut the wrong ones I find that a lot of modern monitors that I've tried, um, Focal, I used to have, you know, Genelec, and I can't really hear the annoying frequencies of the guitar as well as I can in Yamahas. So the NS10s just show you exactly what's wrong? Basically, it's just a translation, man. Like, since getting these NS10s, I've tried my mixes on a bunch of other different speakers, you know, everything from car stereos to, you know, really expensive systems, uh, PMCs. And they just translate really well, man. I found that with Amphions as well, and people say that the Amphions are just like hi-fi NS10s, basically. But uh, the thing I found about them was that what was wrong with the mix was just strikingly clear. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I heard with the NS10s. Yeah, it's just immediately obvious what you need to get rid of. I think that's probably why the NS10s were so popular in studios as a secondary pair of monitors, because it just highlights problems really well. So I guess that's kind of one of the aspects that helped me. Getting a set of monitors 
that were disgusting. Well, I mean, a set of monitors that do their job. The thing is that monitors uh, are not meant for enjoyment. They're, they're not. Meant, they're meant for problem solving and for working. And so he- hearing what's wrong is so important. And I think that sometimes people choose their monitors unwisely, you know, they're, they're, when they go into a store to listen to what they want from a monitor, they're actually listening for the wrong thing. They're probably listening to their own mix and hoping that the monitor that sounds the best for their mix is the one they're going to get. Yeah, I think listening to monitors in a store is just a bad idea anyway. That true as well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but... I think that's, you know, I, I've done that before. I chose the Focals because I thought that Carnival Sound Awake sounded the best through them. Carnival Sound Awake sounds the best through anything. Ah, through NS10s, <laughs> man. Should try it through NS10s. <laughs> Does it still sound magical or do you hear problems with it? I mean, you're going to hear problems with every mix, aren't you? I mean, that is still my favorite mix in the world as far as, you know, like a prog band goes i love that mix i think it sounds great but through ns10s it does not sound good but i don't really know any mixes that sound good through ns10s <laughs> well i mean the moral of the story here is that you have a set of monitors that really highlights what's wrong with the tone so that you can do the job to it um when i first discovered monitors that were a little less shitty it made my work way, way better. And I know what you mean about the Genelex. I think that I know exactly what you mean on them because I've heard NS10s or Amphions or whatever and been like, wow, the level of detail is just missing from my life. But it's then, <laughs> but then there's also the other part of it where it's your ears take time to get used to something. And sometimes it's just about learning the speaker that you have listened to music on for years. Yes, that's true. We just did nail the mix with Billy Decker, who might be the, the greatest mixer ever. Uh, God, he's so good. But um, he uses Mackie HS824s, man. Yeah, I know. It's absolutely mental, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't believe it. Like those are the speakers that I sold years ago. Yeah, but it sounded phenomenal in his room. It's 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 really weird, phenomenal. isn't it? It's just like, for example, like Jay Rustin uses a set of HS series Yamahas. You know. <laughs> yeah, and he, his mixes are ridiculously amazing. Amazing, absolutely incredible. So, like, I think it's just a case of getting used to something, and sometimes that just takes you know years of practice. So, yeah, maybe everything that I just said about monitors was completely wrong. I just found that it worked for me. Getting those NS10s just made everything make sense. No, I, I, don't think that, I don't think that what you said was wrong. I think that there's a difference between despite and because. Yeah. And I think that someone with the level of talent and skill and determination of Billy Decker or Jay Rustin will be able to mix great on anything that you put in front of them. Yep. And they would get great regardless of their monitor. I think so too. And I also think that, so it's kind of like regardless of what they do, they're going to be best in the world status. That doesn't help everybody else though. No, it doesn't. Who needs to do a job who might not be best in the world status. And that's also not to say that if they had other monitors that they wouldn't, you know, who knows, right? Exactly, who knows? I mean, you do have to do you you should work with what you're most comfortable with at the end of the day. That's 
that really is what's most important. But don't be fooled by people who are the best in the world who can put out great work despite having a tool that's not as great. Exactly, yeah. And, and like, you know, when people talk about this is the best, there is never really a best. It's just like what works for the scenario at the time, you know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, dude, trying, I had a really hard time finding, like, doing guitar EQ on my HSA 24s. Okay. Yeah. It, I had a really hard time hearing hearing the problems. Yeah, I mean I, I, that still happens to me every day. Is you know, you know sometimes like I won't be able to hear the problems, and the, I come to it a couple of hours later, and it's like, oh, there's the problem. So I know exactly exactly what you're saying. <laughs> but yeah, so anyway, just to to go on further about like what we were saying about you know finding space in the mix, like with the bass as well. So we were saying you know two fifty to five hundred is kind of bass territory, but then obviously your snare has to cut as well in that territory so it's about finding the space and understanding where your snare is going to cut so for example like you know when people uh, are flicking through their different samples on superior drummer i'm always confused how they can make that work sometimes because you know different snares will cut in different places which means they've technically got to change the entire mix <laughs> after they've changed something you know yeah (laughs) (laughs) and and you know like you know when you get these um you know people that don't understand production obviously it's not their fault but you know when they say can they turn can you turn up the volume of the bass you have like a certain amount of leeway but the moment that you start turning up the volume of the bass you start losing certain things around the mix as well so it's not always as simple as just turning up the volume of something no it's uh working the puzzle pieces together in a different way yeah it's like almost like restructuring the entire song so yeah, I don't know. I always I always run into these problems when I'm mixing, but I guess that's kind of like why I try and think like, yeah, the bass needs to cut here, the guitars need to cut here, kick drum cuts there, and then I can sort of start piecing all the tones together based on what, you know, is going on with the foundation of the track. And you think about this stuff when you're making your live tones too? Um, to a degree, yeah. It's a little bit more difficult with that because obviously um, you don't have it recorded down in front of you um, and obviously when you're on tour the kick drum tuning and the snare drum tuning change quite rapidly <laughs> um, yes. to what the drummer wants to play on that particular day <laughs> oh that sounds great oh god I've got to change my guitar tone again <laughs> but yeah like to a degree yeah I find that that's kind of why I still use an amp live as well because it's you know, it's it's really great that you want to you know travel around with the the Kemper, the Axe Effects, or any other modeling device. But in reality, every single room sounds different, so the one tone isn't going to work in every single venue in every single scenario. Whereas if I've got an amp and a cab in front of me, I can make that tone sound good in the room, in its surroundings. If that makes sense. Yes, absolutely. So that's kind of why I still use an amp live because I don't think that we are even close to being able to recreate consistently great sounds from, uh, you know, modelers where it's not just going to sound wrong in one venue and then right in another. It needs to sound right all the time. So that's kind of why I'm still an amp guy. I think amps sound great. You're an amp guy and a Line 6 guy. Yeah, I love Line 6, and I use it for my clean sounds live, and I'll use it for my distortion on the record, but um, as I say, the reason that I don't use the distortion of the Line 6 is just because of that anomaly. Yep, for sure. That's basically it. Um, 
and I'm a little bit too scared of, you know, just running through a monitor. Yeah, that is kind of scary. And yeah, I just like, you know, feeling like I've been hugged by a bear from behind by a nice tube-driven amplifier distortion. Well, I, I can just give you a bear hug next from, time I see you. From behind. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I've got some uh, questions here from our listeners for you. Okay. Uh, I want to ask you. Here's one from, man, I can't pronounce his first name, so I'm going to say last name Medeiros, okay. which is Brown. I love you. You're playing in your songs. Getting to ask you questions feels like such an honor since Eminusis, Gnosis, Quatsi, and Yetzirah were all such a big inspiration to me. Thank you so much. Question from a fellow heavy picker. How do you pick hard without sending the string sharp? I've been hard at work searching for my ideal combination of pick gauge, string gauge, and different attack angles. What works for you? So it is pretty difficult sometimes. Um, you can pick too hard and make... Uh, the string sharp um, also before I get into the rest of this question thank you very much for the question I'm glad that you enjoy the noise that I make um, but yeah so I use one millimeter nylon Dunlop picks and the reason for that is they're hard enough where they're where they're rigid but they still have a little bit of flex to them um, where it's a little bit forgiving um, and I think that's part of the reason why my strings don't go sharp um, but for certain parts of our set depending on the song i'll also tune my low string ever so slightly flatter just to make sure that on those hard hitting notes that it's not going to go ever so slightly out of tune but i find that you know tuning so low and having such thick gauge strings it is really difficult to be consistently in tune especially in a live scenario so it's basically trial and error to see what works for you with me i've found you know tuning my low string slightly flat on the A flat stuff um, that we do helps with keeping the the tuning consistent on the guitar, and obviously getting your guitar set up, making sure your guitar set up every so often so that you know the intonation is correct. That helps a lot, and just making sure the action's good. The guitar's basically been maintained so that it can handle what you're throwing at it. Great answer. Here's one from Keegan Jackson. I've been playing guitar for quite a while now and unfortunately never corrected my bad habits earlier on, such as picking technique that strained my arm and gripping my pick and fretboard very tightly. It's just now starting to become a problem for me, so I've corrected my picking technique quite a bit, but I'm still experiencing fatigue in my hands and pain in my arms when I play for a short period of time. Just wondering if you have ever dealt with any issues like this and what measures you took to correct or prevent it? That's a good question, actually. Um, Dude, hasn't I feel like every guitar player who plays metal has dealt with this at some point, or they're just not very good. <laughs> um, no, I think everyone, like, I don't think it's necessarily just metal guitarists. I think every guitarist that plays is constantly battling something. Yes. Um, you know, like, the bad technique thing, we've all gone through that, definitely. I mean, I definitely did. I used to put my thumb to the side on my fingerboard because I thought it looked cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> the dumb shit you do when you're dumb young. shit you do, right? And I used to have, like, I remember I bought two guitar straps from the store one time because I wanted my guitar lower than one guitar strap would let me do. <laughs> <laughs> I want to anyway, see a picture of that. Oh, <laughs> uh, man, no, that's never going to happen. <laughs> anyway, so um, when it comes to, like, repairing problems with your arms and wrists 
it's pretty much like anything else such as sports or anything like that and before you go into guitar playing you need to make sure that your muscles are really warmed up um you know like for example ollie right now is having a little issue with his wrist but i won't go into detail about that a couple of guys i've recorded as well have had some problems with their wrist and um, what they found that helped them a lot was this uh, this device called a Powerball. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of a Powerball. And it's a gyroscope uh -huh. that you spin in your hand in different directions. And, you know, doing that for like 10 to 20 minutes a day, just to make sure that all the muscles are warmed up before they start playing, really helped them out. Um, like, I've, I've tried the Powerball and it definitely, definitely warmed up my wrists really, really well. So if you're having problems with, with your muscles and, and problems with your arms, then you need to think about, you know, um, maybe even visiting a physio and seeing if they can help you out with some exercises so that it makes the guitar playing easier for you. I don't think that, like, any of these problems that you're getting with your wrists and your arm uh, unrepairable. It's literally just a case of finding a, a workout regime that works for the problems that you have. I'm quite lucky in that aspect that I've never really had a problem with uh, my hands apart from once when I slipped over on stage landing on my right arm and couldn't really play properly for a week and ever ever so occasionally I get a, like a really small pain um, in my right hand uh, in the muscle between my first finger and my thumb but I'll just shake it out you know to get rid of it so that's not really a massive problem but I recommend a Powerball maybe seeing a physio uh, a physiotherapist if they can give you some exercises to sort of loosen the muscles in in your arms um but you know arm pain and and hand pain might not even be from your arm it might be from a muscle in your back so it's better to get some professional help for that to see where the problem starts basically and i'll also add that uh rest is huge that's actually a good um, one i forgot about that i'm sorry if you start experiencing these problems don't be an idiot stop playing and i i don't just mean right that night i mean you might need to stop playing for a few weeks until you get it solved it's better to get it solved than to you know mess yourself up worse i agree here's one from uh josh grant which is what are your personal must-have guitar specs okay thank you for the question josh um i when it it it, it kind of depends on what how many strings the guitar has uh, for my initial spec. So, for example, if it's seven or eight string, then mahogany is a no-go for me as it focuses on the lower mids rather than the upper mids <laughs> that I prefer, which I went over earlier. Uh -huh. um, but I'm actually really easy when it comes to guitar specs, you know, as long as the, the, the guitar is made of ash and it has some, you know, like really decent pickups in it you know, like some bare knuckles or even some seymour duncans like some of the seymour duncan pickups i've tried are, are really really good then i'm actually fairly easy as long as the guitar plays well and sounds good the only no-go for me is literally mahogany on a seven or eight string because i think it sounds like like crap but anything else pretty much goes i mean you worked in a guitar store man like you as and also as long as i've known you well, first of all, let me just say, you worked in a very uh, boutique guitar store. Yeah. So you were always around great instruments. And as long as I've known you, you've always had new guitars and new instruments. So you just seem to be like one of those guys that likes guitars. And yeah. if you play lots of different guitars, you, it's hard to be really uh, nitpicky about a million different little specs. Exactly, yeah. Like, you know, I could sit here and say that I don't like nickel frets, but... 
they always have to be stainless steel but you know what on some guitars it works you know some people don't like single core pickups for metal but i absolutely adore p90s for metal i think p90s are the hidden gem of this genre of music and no one ever thinks about i'm gonna try a p90 and try and be heavy as hell with it i mean you've tried p90s right yeah yeah i've got p90s in a couple of guitars i love them they sound amazing don't they the only issue is they're a little bit noisy but in terms of the aggression i find them way more aggressive than a humbucker so yeah put one of those in every guitar and it'll be great (laughs) um but but yeah you know just like um i guess locking machine heads is a must just because it makes string changing easier on tour i really like the hip shot ones they're really really good a fixed bridge actually is an absolute must because i cannot deal with floyd rose bridges on tour anymore i can't do it oh god dude (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'm just i'm i'm just like i'm just gonna agree with you yeah i just can't i can't i can't put myself through that that hassle of if something goes wrong on tour and i only have one guitar then i don't need the added pain of a floyd rose bridge and it floating it definitely doesn't need to be floating (laughs) so yeah um, as far as that goes i'm pretty easy you know ebony fretboard i really like just because it stays clean it's solid on tour you know but yeah i'm pretty easy i'm not i'm not really difficult to be honest as long as it sounds good i'm happy okay pekka vatanen is wondering do your di's still clip yes they do (laughs) <laughs> i actually have a i have a preamp coming this week actually from stam audio um one of their oh, nice one of their you know their um 1073 clones uh from oh, that's what uh that was the prize in last month's nail the mix so two of our two of our subscribers are going to get to try those out awesome yeah I've, i mean i've got their sa 4000 sslg clone compressor which is phenomenal it's absolutely mind-blowing especially for how little money it is so i'm going to try out this new preamp and it's obviously got the di function in it as well i'm going to see if that still clips my guitar or my eye clip the preamp but i've not found one di box yet that i don't clip at all because you play like a fucking beast yeah maybe i should just develop a new di box for guitarists that hit too hard what do you reckon do you want to be my business partner yeah, let's do it. <laughs> the <laughs> like, birth of an amazing thing just yeah. started here. We'll just make, we'll here. just make we'll make it sound like the little labs, but with like ten times the headroom. Yeah, I mean, dude, you play so hard, and uh, yeah, let's let's make a DI together. It'll be fun. <laughs> I think it'll be fun um, too. I know nothing about electronics. <laughs> neither do we'll find, we'll do we'll find someone who's listening who knows how to build stuff. If someone listening knows how to build stuff and wants to make a di box that can handle gargantuan strength guitar players hit me or brown up and we'll uh, we'll make it happen so and on that topic albin lyrebo is wondering do you have any tips for building picking hand strength and consistency yeah i mean like I, this this is kind of a joke on my part i say it to everyone but literally learn master of puppets like that that helped me out so much just learning that song even just a year ago when i relearn it again i found that i was able to play things i wasn't able to play as well before i learned that song but when it comes to picking hand strength it's like a lot of people will focus on speed but maybe speed isn't the thing that they should be focusing on maybe it's consistency you know because getting fast is not difficult it's getting fast and consistent that's really really difficult so as i've said uh, you know if anyone ever reads anything that i i say i i just like um 
you know, I'll focus on what my DI signal looks like and try and just like play everything until it's as consistent as possible, till it's as uh, as fluent as possible, and literally. You know, every single day you should be recording yourself to see if you, there's any progress. The same riff, you know, over and over every single day. That's kind of how I got better, just noticing these little nuances in my playing through recording myself every single day. I still find it crazy that there's people out there that don't practice to a metronome. <laughs> you know? I know. It's, it's almost not practicing. No, it's like if you practice to a metronome, you'll eventually develop an internal click where you'll just be able to play tight do you know what i mean it'll just be like it'll become like second nature like a sixth sense so yeah play to a metronome try you know playing slowly to begin with and building up speed over time so that you get the consistency straight away if you can't play it slow then you can't play it fast and also a lot of the time you'll find that playing riffs slower than you've written them will actually be harder to play which will then focus more on your consistency. So that's a really good place to start as well. And strap a 15 pound weight to your wrist. <laughs> no, don't do that. You'll probably break. No, 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 don't actually do that. <laughs> that. That was just a joke. Do not do that. You could probably masturbate like five times a day. That would probably help a lot. <laughs> Use both with both hands. No, no, just right. Or if you're left-handed, <laughs> just your left hand, you know? <laughs> well, what, what if you want to work on your, uh, you know, your hammer-ons and stuff, pull-offs and the, Stuff that bends, you know, stuff that takes that wrist strength. Yeah. So it's both hands, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there's that. (laughs) (laughs) Marek Baz wondering, how did you find out about Mayonis guitars? Like, how did your endorsement get started? Okay, so um, the first time I tried a Mayonis was actually one of the guys from Textures, Mr. Bart. What's his name? Han- Hanifoff. I probably pronounced his name wrong there, Bart Hanifoff. And I've known Bart since about 2003, and they were originally with Ibanez, like anyone pretty much that played a seven string, because that was the only good brand available seven string back in the day. But then in around 2005, I want to say, they got Mayodes guitars. Maybe a little bit later than that, actually. Um, and I Bart let me play one of his at a gig that we played. And I really, really liked it. And then Ackle got one, and I tried that, and I also really, really liked it. So I emailed Mayonez and didn't get a reply back initially. And then uh, at NAM show, 2000 and... It was either... Four, it must have been 2014, yeah. So NAM 2014, the US distributor knew who I was and introduced me to uh, Dawid and the guys from Miners and we started this uh, relationship which has been now going on for three years and uh, a signature guitar later and I couldn't be more happier with the guitars that I play. They are phenomenal and sound amazing, look amazing and the quality control of their guitars is absolutely unbelievable. I don't think I've played a guitar with that level of detail on it other than miners which is actually hard to find the a consistent level of quality on guitar companies that aren't the major ones yeah. is actually hard to find like the, that guitar company probably make about 2000 guitars a year and i've never seen one that is not up to the standard that i see on mine you know every single one is just absolutely mind-blowingly good yeah i mean i can i can concur they are great guitars. They sound great. Well, John, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for... Thank you so much. Yeah, it's you should come on again. I, I'm sure that we should do another 
podcast all about your songwriting method. I think we should definitely do that as well. Thank you for having me, Eyal. You are the best. No, you are. <laughs> no, you. Let's have no. bear hugs when I next see you. Yeah, from behind. And hump a little bit. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Right. Awesome, man. It's been great having you on. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, I'll see you soon. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Balaguer Guitars. Founded in 2014, Balaguer Guitars strives to bring modern aesthetics and options to vintage-inspired designs. Go to balaguerguitars.com for more info. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Fishman, inspired performance technology. Fishman is dedicated to helping musicians of all styles achieve the truest sound possible wherever and whenever they plug in. Go to Fishman.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit NailTheMix.com slash podcast and subscribe today.